seven deadly sins. Uh, you, uh, if you have lived uh, in the world, have heard the, of them, of, of the term. You might not be able to name all seven, but you at least know that they're a thing. Uh, the, the seven deadly sins have this kind of huge popular currency in our world today. There are, there are movies about them. You might have seen one called Seven, um, where a, a guy basically takes vengeance on people for one of each of the sins by killing them, but somehow that's fine. Anyway, uh, that, that's one such thing. Uh, a long time ago, back in the 80s, Harper's Magazine uh, produced a series uh, in its, in its uh, magazine covers called You Can Have It All, Seven Campaigns for Deadly Sin. Uh, and each page was, uh, they hired New York advertising agencies to kind of put the best foot forward as to why you should commit the seven sins. And of course, uh, I think in popular culture, particularly as there's been a move away from the influence of church in the in the world uh, the seven deadly sins have I think become something for which people like to try and achieve uh, as a way for them say uh, proving the irrelevance of God and uh, the church to their lives and life in general not only that, but uh, it goes the other way too. People also will use the phrase the seven deadly sins to talk about, uh, you know, like the seven deadly sins of uh, home renovations or the seven deadly sins of uh, growing a vegetable garden or the seven deadly sins of investing or fashion or whatever it might be. Uh, the, the term is extremely popular, extremely well used and, I would say, extremely misunderstood both by Christians for whom it is a rich tradition and heritage uh, and uh, by the world at large. You might know a lot about the seven deadly sins. I personally knew very little uh, uh, when I thought up this great idea, uh, uh, but I've uh, come to uh, appreciate something of their history and relevance for us today. Of course, part of what's going on in the world at large when they uh, kind of seek to prove that the seven deadly sins are in fact seven of the funnest things you can possibly do, uh, and the worst thing you can do is take God seriously, uh, is uh, actually that, that, that relationship points to, to something, I think, real that go, that's going on. Because these, these sins, uh, they have an attractive power because they do uh, sort of promise happiness and, 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 they, and it looks like you might achieve happiness if you have all the, the sex you want or if you have all the people in the world think you're amazing, or if you uh, have all the money that you want. These things, uh, they look like the promise of, of, of happiness. They, they promise so much. They sparkle. They offer an easy shortcut and a recipe for the self-made human to achieve glory and satisfaction. But of course, 
They are shallow and fail to truly satisfy the human heart. They are the world's offer. They are Satan's offer of cheap... uh, 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 They're cheap substitutes for true contentment. And, of course, the other thing we see is often in many uh, cases as we uh, consider these sins... Uh, that what we have in in a lot of cases is distorted goods. That is, sometimes uh, there is an element to these sins which when uh, practised correctly, uh, they can be uh, good. Often it's when these things get out of place or become idols that uh, they become a true evil, a true problem when we... Uh, misalign our values or uh, as Augustine and Aquinas, uh, two of the great church uh, uh, people of church history who uh, write about the seven deadly sins talk about, they disorder our loves. The seven deadly sins reflect our disordered hearts and that we have sometimes the desire and pursuit for things that, that are out of order. We put the wrong things in the wrong order when it should go God first and everything else second. We put created things in the place of God. And so looking at the seven deadly sins, as we're going to do over the next seven weeks, helps us to put God first and to start thinking about our hearts and, the, and what order they are in and what our disordered loves might be. I think the other thing that we do when we stop and think about specific sins, as we all do, uh, is we, we actually stop to take sin seriously. N.T. Wright uh, has, says this, he says, Christians seem to me to divide into two groups nowadays. The first lot, like the culture, don't think sin matters much anymore. And the second know perfectly well that it does matter, but still can't kick the habit. So there's kind of like two, he says there's still like two ways you can go about this. Think sin's not a problem or think it's a massive problem but there's nothing you can do about it. And as we uh, reflect on the, the, these sins, I hope that what we'll see, uh, as we, particularly as we move into the season of Lent, which is a time of reflection and repentance, that what we're going to uh, redeem from the seven deadly sins is... Uh, the practice of reflecting on our hearts, on our sin, and seeking God's help to deal with that sin so that we can progress in sanctification. That is, we can, we can grow to become more like Christ. So, seven deadly sins. Now, I think that over time these have become misnamed. The seven deadly sins would be more helpfully thought of as the capital vices. So let's have a little think about that. Uh, Why why use the word vice instead of sin? Well, that basically is because of the, the, the huge theological nature of the word sin. See, the word sin has a a very broad scope. It can include patterns of sinfulness in our behaviour. It can include our fallen nature in general as human beings under the original sin of Adam. 
And uh, it can also uh, be referred to single acts of disobedience. I just told a lie, I just did a sin. So when we say the seven deadly sins, we don't actually have any idea what we're talking Are we talking about seven original sins? Are we talking about seven sins which um, uh, uh, somehow uh, afflict all of humanity? What, what are we talking about? Seven specific sins? What are actually are we talking about? Which is why uh, in church history they've often used this term vice. A vice is something more specific. A vice is something that people, uh, a word people use to describe deeply ingrained patterns in our character. Patterns that are broader than a single act, but narrower than our general sinful human condition. A vice is something that may not necessarily be sin, but can also be a good thing out of order. So vice, I think, more helpful for us. Likewise, uh, the word deadly is unhelpful too. And we're better off going with the word capital. Because deadly uh, is... Uh, the, the word deadly, the seven deadly sins, that word comes from uh, a school of thought uh, often seen in Roman Catholicism which, refer, which uh, differentiates between mortal sins and venial sins. So if you'll uh, excuse me for a moment as we dive down this rabbit hole, mortal sins uh, in uh, Catholic theology are sins that cause spiritual death and cut us off from God's grace. Whereas a venial sin is something that disposes us to mortal sin but does not in itself sever our union with God. And so uh, if, you, if you take the seven deadly sins with this uh, framework of looking at sin, then what you do is you say, okay, these are the seven mortal sins that are going to cut us off from the grace of God, which is different to all the other sins that I might commit, which uh, are, are going to dispose me to committing a deadly sin. And of course, I hope you're, you're sitting there going, that doesn't pass the sniff test. Like, um, uh, th th that doesn't quite feel, feel like... I'm, I think there's things in the Bible that, that make me think that's wrong. And, of course, you'd be right. We know, of course, that if we put our faith in Christ from Romans chapter 8, that there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. So the first is that faith comes first and there is nothing that can separate us from God, if we have our faith and trust in him, nothing he can't forgive. Except, of course, the decision to totally reject him because we put ourselves, uh, we, we, we spurn his uh, grace and forgiveness offered to us in Christ. So the first is there is actually nothing that can separate us. The second thing also from Romans, and of course the, that, this is the reason why you all uh, thought this felt funny, right, is because you remembered our Roman series last year, uh, Romans 6, uh, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You, you, not only can, is there nothing that can separate us if we're in Christ Jesus because of his uh, saving grace, but also every sin is mortal. All sin 
leads to death. And so the, having the word deadly in there is, is unnecessarily confusing. And so the word capital is, is, is preferred because the word capital comes from uh, uh, Latin and it refers to the head or the root of something. So like the capital city, right? That's the, 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 the head city or the, the top city. Uh, and, and so talking about a capital vice as opposed to a deadly sin uh, is to talk about deep root uh, disorder loves that can cause many sinful behaviours. And so in church history, uh, they often think of, of, of these deadly sins or these capital vices uh, as like a tree. Uh, with the, the deadly sins there, which are kind of root causes, with many other sins that kind of branch out from there. And it's meant to be used not as a way of worrying about whether you're in or out of God's grace and love and salvation, but of trying to diagnose why it is that you're engaging in certain sinful behaviours and what's really going on deep down inside your heart. So... Let's uh, just now uh, do a deep dive, a quick, not really that deep, but a quick dive into the history of the seven deadly sins. And then we're going to try and very quickly look at the first of the deadly sins. We'll see how we go. So, these sins, uh, this, the, 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 the capital vices, evolve from a deep, uh, and, and long tradition that started out in the desert of Egypt in the year about 350. So we're talking like 300 years after uh, Christ uh, has died and rose again, there are some Christians, in particular a guy called, uh, he's probably not, he probably wasn't called this, but this is how I'm going to say it, uh, Evagirus of Pontus, E-V-A-G-R-I-U-S. And he put together a list of vices. He had eight of them, uh, and he said that these were the sins that someone who was entering the monastic lifestyle had to go out into the desert and deal with, and his model for this method of behaviour was Jesus, who went out into the wilderness, was tempted, and then kind of began his Christian ministry. He was like, hey, let's go out into the desert, let's work out what the really deep sins that people struggle with are, we'll go out into the desert and we'll try and deal with them, and then we'll be right to go back in. And of course, they, they weren't Jesus, so they kind of got stuck in the desert dealing with their sin forever. He had a disciple called John Cassian, and he popularised these uh, vices. And then a few centuries later, there was this guy who you might have heard of called Pope Gregory. And he turned the eight vices into seven vices uh, because... One uh, separate to the vices was this thing called the virtues, and there were seven of them, but I don't have time to talk about that today. Uh, but also seven, if you uh, know much about the Bible, is the number of completeness. And so in Pope Gregory's mind, well, there are seven virtues, that's cool. Uh, seven's the number of completeness. Let's have seven vices. That make, it seems nicer, neater, rounder, more complete. Uh, and so... What he did was combined a couple of them together and also made pride not one of the seven deadly sins, but 
the root cause uh, underneath all sin. And he got that from the Garden of Eden, right, where Adam and Eve think that they know better than God. They, they have pride. Uh, and so that, that happened. Uh, people run with that for a bit. And then in about the year 1,220-something or 30-something, Aquinas comes along. Uh, he reads all of this stuff and he synthesises all, uh, all that has gone before him. He writes this massive book or series of books uh, called The Summer Theologiae uh, and he has this huge section on the vices and the virtues and that is the that is like it, the summer theologia is massive and and has a huge impact on christian thought from that point on and the vices and the virtues uh is the is probably the biggest bit of that uh, and so he again goes with pope gregory pride being the root and then lists out these seven deadly sins or as we're calling them the capital vices and they are vainglory envy, sloth, avarice, wrath, lust, and gluttony. Uh, he has a friend or a, 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 comp a compatriot who, who's called William Peraldus, and he writes this kind of practical... He's the, he's the populariser of the theologian, so uh, Aquinas is in the, in the Bible college, uh, writing stuff that in, in, people in the real world can't understand uh, and this guy comes along and popularises it for the, the, the simple priests uh, and pastors of the day to actually use in day-to-day -day practice. And so uh, these vices and virtues become part of, if you were a Christian in uh, the sort of uh, 13th century and 14th century, this is how you did Christianity, right? Vices and virtues, vices and virtues, vices and virtues. And that was okay, but it sort of became bigger than Ben-Hur and, and the vices and virtues kind of became the thing that people cared about. And so when the uh, Protestants come along and the, the, the movement uh, back to the sources begins, which is going back to the, the Bible in its original languages and, and trying to undo some of the, 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 the things that have just got a little bit lost in translation uh, over the last thousand odd years, they sort of get a bit, they, they get a bit thingy about these vices and virtues. They've been used in unhelpful ways. They've become the thing that matters. Uh, they can't see a lot of uh, warrant for uh, the, the, this list of seven. Uh, there's not like they're, they're not in the Bible, like the Apostle Paul didn't write in Romans chapter 70, 75, and here are the seven deadly sins. So it, it kind of starts to fade away from use. I think rightly these Protestants were concerned that uh, the way it was getting practised at the time was leading to this works-based righteousness, which of course was how the whole church operated back then. Uh, people were, seeing, were, were assessing their life based on a list of seven sins and if they were going okay uh, and were seen more virtuous than vice-filled, then they thought, well, on some total I'm okay. And, of course, when they go back to the Bible, they realise it's not about comparing yourself to lists, but it's about faith in Christ, which brings salvation to all who are unrighteous, but in Christ are made righteous, 
again. So I think they were right to, to, to push back on this, but it's possible, I think, that perhaps uh, in dispensing with them as we've done over the last 500 years, uh, we may have lost something that is actually helpful to us as Christians. Obviously, if we become works-based righteousness people, very unhelpful. But uh, if we use these as they sort of were intended, uh, as Augustine and even Aquinas intended, to, to use these vices as a way of examining our moral life before God and seeking to uh, get to the root sins in our hearts, then perhaps there's something that we can learn from them. Because, of course, as Christians, we know we ought to be concerned with becoming holy. And becoming holy is, involves the putting to death of self and sin and clothing ourselves with the character of Christ. And so, uh, if you read uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, he tells us places like Ephesians 4, verses 22 and 24, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which is cor being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self to be created more like God in true righteousness and holiness. Or again, he says in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 15, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, and as God's holy chosen people... Uh, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness. Put to death the vices, put on the virtues. And in fact, verse 14 of Colossians chapter 3, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Or, Paul again, Romans 12, 1 to 2. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of your, your God's mercy, mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Paul is concerned that the Christian be an active participant in his or her sanctification, becoming more like Jesus putting off the old self, putting on the new self. Of course, it's done in the power of the Spirit. But as Christians, we need to be people who are practising continual repentance and confession, seeking God's power to transform us and seeking to daily die to sin and rise to new life in Christ. And if we're going to do that, I want to uh, contend that we can lean on church history and the capital vices as one of many tools which help us to expose our sin and put it to death. And in fact, from the 4th to the 15th centuries, that's what these were used for. As uh, one scholar says as they reflect on these sins, she says, rather than praying in general for forgiveness of sin or reducing all our sin to pride or generic selfishness, with the, with, the, with the capital vices, we can lay specific sins before God, ask for the grace to root them out and engage in daily disciplines, both individually and communally, that help us to target them. I think there's something to that. That is, we can use these as we look at them 
to do as uh, Peter describes in his letter in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 8, uh, that God in his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Through these he has given us his great and precious promises so that we may participate in his divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil, our evil desires. For this reason, make every effort, that is, be involved in adding to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and so on and so forth. So, the seven deadly sins or the capital vices help us. They help us to name our sins, to examine our hearts and to do the work of putting to death the old self and putting on the new self. Happy to talk more about this after the service over a cuppa if you would like. But one final example before we then do vainglory in two minutes. Often I think we treat sin like it is a broken arm rather than a cancer. Let me explain. Often what happens with our sin uh, is we uh, see something like, oh, I, ju I just told a lie. Like, Oops, I just told a lie. I, I shouldn't tell lies, I should stop telling lies. Right? And that's kind of like when we uh, are playing sport and we... Uh, we sort of, you know, make a tackle and our arm gets sore and we think, oh, and then, oh, look, there's a bone. I've broken my arm. I, should, I shouldn't break my arm. I need to fix my arm. And we get our arm fixed. And it's a very kind of like, there's a thing and there's the, there's the problem. But sin is, is not like that. It's much more like cancer, which can be pervasive and, and hidden hard to treat, hard to actually understand what's going on until maybe we break our arm. You go, why did that happen? I was just walking down the street and I bumped on the thing and my arm broke. I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. What's going on? And, and then we go deeper and we go, well, hang on, my bones are, are, are weak because they're riddled with, with cancer. There's, there's this deep problem and, and fixing that is going to be a lot more effort than simply bandaging up my broken arm. And with sin, it's hard for us to actually stop, and, and we're not particularly good at it, I don't think, uh, and actually think, why? Like, why do I lie? Why, why am I doing that? Lying is bad, yes, but, but why? What's going on underneath? And this is where these capital vices can help us because they're, they're windows in deeper into our soul than perhaps the presenting issue might be. Uh, they're, they're windows into the cancer that is sin. And, of course, I think vainglory is a, a great one to think of when we're thinking about lying because it can be the, the root cause of much lying. But you're probably thinking, what the heck is vainglory, Chris? Well, Napoleon Bonaparte said that glory is fleeting, but obscurity is forever. And uh, his, his point was uh, best to have glory even if it's only for a short time. 
And vainglory is the excessive and disordered desire for recognition and, uh, and approval for others. So if we go back to that line example, why do I, why do I keep lying? Well, ah, hang on, vainglory. Maybe it's because I really want to be liked and approved of by others. So I, I, you know, I bend the truth a little bit. That's interesting. Now I've got some sort of window deeper into my soul that I need to sort out if I want to stop lying. So, vainglory, I think, is the sin, or, I mean, all the sins can be described, but this one to me describes, describes to me, I think, one of the great sins of our era, the disordered desire for recognition and approval for others, because, of course, I've got this thing here uh, and I, in, in, inside it, I get approval from others depending on what I put on it. Uh, it's like a vainglory machine. Uh, in fact, right now, let me just take a selfie of how good my preaching's going, and we'll see how many likes I can have uh, by the end of the service. It's easy, isn't it, to get uh, caught up in this disordered desire to have recognition and approval for others. Peer pressure is, I guess, another example of vainglory in action, where we do things to win the approval of the group, to make ourselves look good, uh, and, we, and we seek that good rather than what might actually be right. You know, we go along with bullying our friends when we're in school rather than uh, putting on the love of Christ, as Kerry talked about, because we want approval. Often people conflate this sin with pride, but of course, as I mentioned briefly, pride really does sit at the root of, of these, these sins. It's, it's another level deeper again. And of course, you could be a proud person and have no struggle with vainglory because you know you're so good you don't even need people's approval. Vain glory on steroids can lead us to seek glory for things that are not glorious. Uh, you know, we, 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 we posting those pictures, look how good my haircut is, look how good my new uh, clothes are, look at this, look at that. And, and we seek praise and, and, and honour for things that are not eternally significant. And of course, the thing that's so dangerous about this is it is indeed okay, isn't it, to, to, to receive praise. There's, there's nothing wrong with someone saying, hey, Chris, good job the other day. The problem is, is when you then take that praise and try and get more of it from places you don't deserve it. And it becomes even worse when we fail to turn that praise that we get into thankfulness to God who is the ultimate source of all the good that we have. Vainglory really runs wild when we fail to recognise ourselves as recipients and stewards of God's good gifts. So, what to do with this? Well, Jesus warns against the sin of vainglory manifested in hypocrisy in our reading today. Did you hear it in Matthew 6? Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others or to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. 
So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do, or in the streets to be honoured by others. And in verse 5, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And uh, if we kept going through Matthew's Gospel, we'd end up in chapter 23, where he really lays into these hypocritical, vainglory-seeking Pharisees. Verse 27 and 28 of Matthew 23, Woe to you, Jesus says, teachers of the Pharisees, you uh, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything is unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And you see, here's the thing that the uh, church fathers out in the desert figured out back when they were first making this list. Vainglory is incredibly dangerous, especially for the Christian who's seeking to deal with his or her sin, because as, I'm sorry, Evagurus said, he said, it is difficult to escape vainglory, for what you do to rid yourself of it becomes for you a new source of vainglory. Oh dear. I mean, you see, that's what's going on for the Pharisees in part, isn't it? Oh, look at me, I'm good at praying. <laughs> I'm good at praying, I'm good at praying, I'm good at praying. Oh, look at me, I can give money, I can give money, I can give money. And you think about the Christian, think about the people uh, who uh, we might get up, some, we might get someone up the front who has overcome a terrible life of drug addiction. And uh, we think, that's pretty cool, what a great story of God's power and grace. And for that person, uh, suddenly... Uh, the glory of the transformation earns them favour and their deceitful hearts get all mixed up and suddenly the, 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 the drug addiction is the least of their concerns. It's the vain glory of the fact that they've overcome it. Now, I'm not saying everyone who gets up in church and talks about how God saved them from drug addiction is a vain, glorious sinner. But rather, you see how Deceitful the heart is, as we read in Jeremiah. So how do we escape seeking the favour and fame uh, that comes from uh, getting attention? Well, we seek God's help to be his glory seekers in all things. Yes, compliments will come. Yes, we're allowed to feel nice about that. But we must make sure our hearts continually turn and give thanks to God. Jesus said in John 15 verse 8, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You see, the, the bearing of fruit by the Christian is not for our glory, but for the Father's as we grow in our knowledge and love of God and our Christian discipleship, we show ourselves to be disciples. People will recognise that, but it's for God's glory. And as the Apostle Paul tells us, we then make sure we boast not in our achievements, but in God himself. 2 Corinthians 10, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. 
the only place where true glory is found is in Christ. And as Christians, we know ultimately we share his glory through faith in what he has done. And that is a glory which we will share in for eternity. That is all that matters. And so a few moments of fame fade into insignificance when compared to the glory of God revealed in Christ Jesus. And so we bear fruit, we put to death our sin, and we boast in God, to whom belongs all glory, honour and praise.